We're in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is a difficult book, we'll make no lie, but what I want to do is hopefully put it together for you in such a way as to where you'll understand where the author is coming from, and then we're going to dive right into an interesting section. You might say, where in the world are we? Give it a chance, let it unfold. The book of Hebrews is about Jewish Christians who, because of the persecution that they are facing against Rome, are thinking about giving up. They're sitting here really asking the question, well, is, is the Christian life really worth it? Is it really worth being faithful to the Lord? Because I'm losing my house, my kids are getting beat up at school, I've been blacklisted from the labor union. Uh, it's just, it's a terrible time for, for our family. And, and when those pressures hit, you're questioning what's worth it. And how long are you willing to stick in? And so the author of Hebrews does something very interesting. He writes to them, letting them know Jesus Christ is superior to anything that you could ever try to substitute him with. And if you will remain faithful to him, he will reward you and bless you beyond what you could possibly understand. But if you fall away from him, there is punishment for that. There is discipline and chastisement. God takes being a believer very seriously. And he has gone to a great deal in order to make the boundless blessings of eternity available to you and I in the here and now. So when you're in college and you're faced with that decision of running with the crowd of what everybody else wants to do or remaining and holding fast to Jesus Christ, the book of Hebrews is for you. When you're dealing with an idea in the workplace where you don't feel like that you can speak out boldly about Jesus or say that you don't agree with an agenda that's being pushed throughout your corporation because of your convictions regarding Scripture and how God has designed everything, this book is for you. Now, what we're looking at right now is the idea that we are priests. And I know that might seem weird, and I know that the 21st century and in church history throughout the ages has probably given us a very strange view of what a priest is, but understand, anything that has been talking about in the past 2,000 years of what a priest is, is not what the Bible is talking about a priest is. And I think it's important for us to make that separation and recognize there's a false representation that is very popular out there, and it needs to be rejected and discarded for the sake of the scriptures standing prominent over that. So we need this to shape our thinking. Jesus is our great high priest. What does this mean? It means that he is the only one that has been found worthy to atone for sin. I had a very interesting discussion with a small group Bible study in Ukraine on Wednesday. Vitaly asked me to Skype in and to lead on the subject of forgiveness. And as anytime you talk about forgiveness, anytime you deal with forgiveness, you have to deal with the death of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the ultimate mark of forgiveness is found in the cross. And so the question that you always have to ask is, well, what sins were forgiven? Now, I hope that I'm not disappointed, so I'm going to go ahead and ask, church, how many of your sins have been forgiven by the cross of Jesus Christ? All of them. Even the ones you're going to commit here in a few minutes? Yeah. Even the ones tomorrow? I mean, tomorrow's Monday. Okay, just want to make sure. Even 2020 sins? All. And so I got everybody in the small group to agree. Jesus died for all my sins. But then, of course, as the conversation develops, there's this one sin. This one sin. Well, Jesus couldn't have died for that. Well, that can't be taken care of. Well, because I still struggle with it, there's no way that the blood could have, could have gotten that. And so I was asked flat out through a translator, 
Can you believe in Jesus Christ and do whatever you want to and still be saved? And I said, well, there's consequences, you know? You decide that you're just going to go up and do all the heroin that the Portage area has to offer and think that you're going to get away because you're a Christian without any consequences, you're going to end up dead. So I said, well, there's major consequences, but yeah. And I don't speak Ukrainian. But in the camera, this woman pointed at me and she said in Ukrainian, liar! And that's when Vitaly said, well, that's all we have for today. Let's go ahead and pray and wrap it up. (laughs) Grace scares people. The atonement scares people. Because in theory, we say, well, this is what the blood of Jesus did. And then when we get in life, we say, well, yeah, the blood of Jesus did that, and that's Sunday truth, but Monday through Saturday truth tells me this. It's not any different. Jesus' blood still does what Jesus' blood does, and it's awesome. So when we talk about we have a great high priest, and what is the significance of our great high priest? Is not only he the one who offers the sacrifice for sin, and when we deal with the idea of sacrifice, we deal with the idea that blood is involved. But he was actually resurrected from the dead so that he could offer his perfect sacrifice for sin. He is the sacrifice, and he is the priest that offers that sacrifice. So we have an incredible, great high priest. And because he did such a good job, he sat down. He's done. Now we find out that we're priests. And why are we priests? We're not great high priests. He's the great high priest. But because we are in Christ, this association, this fellowship we have with him, this locked, done deal with him, all of a sudden elevates my identity and how I see myself. A good exercise to do sometime is to take out a pen and to take a piece of paper and write at the top of it, how do I see myself? Just start your little column there, right? Why do do you groan? I don't see myself very well. But very pessimistic and negative, probably. We see what other people don't see, right? Well, I know my flaws. What does Jesus see? Does Jesus see what you see, or does Jesus see more than what you see? Okay, so let me ask you this. If Jesus sees more of what you see, therefore, he's going to have a much more well-rounded and highly educated view of yourself then should you see yourself in the limited perspective of how you see or how Jesus sees? How Jesus sees. So here's the question. Raise your hand if you're a priest. Every single hand should be up if you're a believer in Christ. I'm a priest. What do I do? Well, last week we saw that, number one, we're holy. We're set apart. This world's doing its thing, and it's doing its thing because Satan's running it. And so whenever you heard the gospel and you responded in faith, God said, now let's take you here and let's set you apart from that. And you've got a different culture of which to cultivate in your family, through your church, in your workplace. But they're doing this. Who cares? You've been set apart. Well, it might cost me something. Who cares? You've been set apart. God's got something different for you. And he is not going to leave you hanging high and dry. He hasn't done it yet. You can't find one person in Scripture that he messed over. Not one person. Not only that, but we found out we have a 
royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood. Do you realize that you're a king priest? You're a little king priest right now. Does that make any kind of sense? Not to me, but it's what the scripture tells me. Thank goodness it's not just my opinion and my limited view of how I see myself. Thankfully, the atonement of Christ gives more and more and more than what I'm willing to settle for because ultimately in life, I need that. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, and we talk about it sometimes, but the world is a downer. Is that putting it lightly? Good grief, the whole world is on drugs. What is wrong with them? What we see is they're sinners, and they're depressed, and they have no answers, and they see no hope. And every solution that they bring to the table has sin as an indispensable part of getting to the other side. It just makes no sense. They need some king priests who have been set apart to speak into their lives. And so how do we do that? What are our responsibilities as king priests? Let's do this first. I've got a little quote if you're ever looking for, if you're, if you're a commentary person who wants to sit down with your Bible and get a commentary out, there's a man named David Allen who has probably written the best commentary on Hebrews. And the way he did it is real clever. All the technical Greek garbledygook that we're like, what in the world is he saying? I'm freaking out. You could just skip that and everything still makes sense. It's really a brilliant thing. Here's what he said. The believer's priesthood is based on their sharing in the heavenly calling, sharing in with Christ. Jesus is our high priest, and believers have been brought into such a relationship with Christ that they too are priests with the concomitant responsibilities and privileges that adhere to a priestly calling. You say, I don't understand anything he just said. That means that he didn't just call you to be a priest. He's actually got something for you to do. And I will go ahead and tell you this. You will not understand what a fulfilling life could possibly be on this earth because we're so discouraged by what we see and we've neglected what Christ has given us to do. To fulfill as ministries, as service, as priests as he has made us. In other words, we're going to learn today some beginning points about what it is to live a full life. So now in Hebrews chapter 12, is where we're going to start. There are three things that we're going to see today in the passages that we look at. Everybody look at verse 25 here. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Okay, wait, stop. Who's him who is speaking? Well, here's what's going on. The entire book of Hebrews has these warnings for Christians. Don't fall away. Don't make that choice. Don't reject Jesus. Stay faithful. Endure. There's blessing in store. And notice that the hymn is capitalized. Why is that? Because all scripture is God-breathed. It's because the Holy Spirit is speaking in this situation and he is warning Christians, don't fall away, and encouraging them, stay faithful to Jesus. It is worth it. When it's all said and done, you may not understand it now. It may not make any sense. It may be as hard as the day is long. Hold fast to Christ. Don't forsake his word. So notice what he says here. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. What would that look like? Well, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to do this. There's the behind the scenes thinking that nobody sees. Well, I know I shouldn't, but don't refuse him who's speaking. For, here's the explanation. If those did not escape when they refused him, lowercase, who warned them on earth, now, who is him who warned them on earth? Well, if you back up to verse 21, you find out it's Moses. 
you find out it was Moses warning the Israelites not to fall away from the Lord, to remain faithful, to stick with him no matter what. And we usually see that in the repetitious lines, especially of the first five books, if you keep his law and his commandments, if you hold fast to those things. Why? Because keeping the law was a way to increase your fellowship with the creator of all things. It was not a way to get saved and go to heaven when you die. It was a way to come into a deeper intimacy with Yahweh. And that's how Israel could approach him in that way. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments, that type of thing. So notice, if we take the past example here, that these people weren't spared when they didn't listen to Moses. Now we've got a much greater witness going on here because we're on the other side of the cross. We're on the other side of the resurrection. We're on the other side of the ascension. We have the guarantee that one day he will return and establish his kingdom literally on earth. And so we're looking forward to this end. In other words, we've got a lot greater knowledge now than what maybe the people had in Moses' day. So with more revelation becomes more responsibility. And if that is the case, we better pay attention. We better listen up. We better not refuse him. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Makes sense, doesn't it? From the lesser to the greater. We get that, right? Now look at what it says here in verse 27. This expression, I'm sorry, verse 26. And his voice shook the earth then. If you want to know about that, that's Exodus 19 and 20. You can read it. His voice, when God spoke, the earth quaked. Now wouldn't you like to be there? And don't you wish you would have had a video camera to, to film it? Everybody's got their phones out. Look at how everything's shaking. No, that's your hand. <laughs> but seriously, God's shaking the earth by his voice. He just speaks. And people start losing their minds. In fact, they tell him after, after he gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, they say, don't ever let God speak to us again. If we hear his voice again, it'll kill us. Instead, Moses, let him speak to you and you speak to us. Let's get somebody in between us because it's too frightening to hear God's voice. So he says here, and his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised. Now this is a promise. This is interesting. This is a warning and a prophecy. He is warning them and he's predicting what will happen in the future. Saying, yet once more, yet once more, pay attention to that. I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. When's that going to happen? Future. Right in there next to your, your Bible, future. It's okay. God still loves you. You can write in your Bible. Verse 27, this expression yet once more denotes the removing, he tells us what it is, the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things. In other words, temporal things. In other words, the things that we often take pride in and we often bet the farm on, we often rest in those earthly things that we highly value collectibles. These are collectibles. How does that make them any more special? You just paid more money for them. That's really what it is, right? All this stuff, the stuff is going to be shaken. And it's not just earth stuff. It's heaven stuff. Heaven stuff is going to be shaken as well. He moves on. It's created things. So that, here's the reason, those things which cannot be shaken may remain or abide. It's the same word that's used all throughout John 15. He who abides in me, that type of thing. 
In other words, when the shaking happens, there's going to be that which remains. Have you ever noticed when you try to shake everything out of something, not everything comes out? We're trying to transform, transfer powdered formula out of the, we've used it all up with the scooper thing. We're trying to figure out how to get it over into the new one. Like, okay, here, here. And you look and you're like, why won't this come out? It's crazy. It's crazy. Some, sometimes you think you've always got all the liquid out of something and then you turn it upside down. All of a sudden there's 12 ounces of liquid in there. For some reason you didn't find it. God's shaking is going to be perfect. And what remains was meant to do so. Why? Because it's eternal. It's forever. In other words, it's purposefully of his design to transcend the here and now and to reach into the future. So notice he's giving this big argument, this big argument about not refusing God's word to be faithful. And then he moves into this. And this is the reason why we had to look at that. Verse 28, therefore, now you know what this is there for, right? Because God warns from heaven. Because he doesn't want you to refuse his warning. Because he actually wants you to run away from the warning of apostatizing and run forward in blessing. And so now he's going to tell us, how do you run forward in blessing to where your life is lived in such a way as to where you are fulfilling your priestly duty? Verse 28, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, you know what that tells you? It's the kingdom of the heavens. Makes a lot of sense to the Matthew gospel. Yes. Notice that we receive it, which means it's yours. The kingdom is yours. Notice that it's future. It's obviously not something that's going on on earth right there at that moment. Notice that we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. It tells me that it's eternal. Four little things we can deduce from that one reasoning that he wants to bring out of that. But look what he goes to after that. Let us, there's a lot of lettuce in Hebrews. Let us show gratitude. Stop. Let us show gratitude. Everybody see that word? How many people, does anybody here have a different word there for gratitude? Thankful? What? Grateful? Who said it? Who said grace? Grace. Jeff, what translation you have? You know what that is? The New King James Version got it right. The King James too? That's an argument I don't want to broach, but. Uh, uh. Grace. Can it be translated gratitude? Absolutely. But it's grace. Since we've been warned from heaven of the punishments or the discipline that comes from falling away from the faith and rejecting Jesus Christ who has died for us completely and fully and perfectly. If you run away from that, you capitulate from that, you deny that, you push it off and you fall away, that's a bad, bad thing. Instead, let us show grace by which we may offer to God the acceptable service with reverence and awe. Good grief. The first offering that we need to understand as believer priests that we render unto God with our lives is an attitude, an attitude of grace, an attitude of grace. What is grace? What's a good definition of grace? Undeserved what? 
Hang on, hang on. Raise your hands. Otherwise, it sounds like craziness. What we think, undeserved what? Go ahead. So, so he gave you something great that you don't deserve. That's the idea, right? Okay. You know what? That's fantastic. God gave you something great you don't deserve. Now, what bothers me is we often still live in undeservedness. And I get it. We get told, well, I'm just nothing but a sinner. I'm just totally terrible. I'm just awful. And we don't want to think too much of ourselves because then that gets into pride. And oh my gosh, there I'm sinning again. And I'm thinking too much of myself and I need Jesus. Good grief. What's wrong with us? It's hard to get settled down into the idea of grace. It's hard to get settled down into this idea of, yeah, I'm undeserving. And that needs to be totally solidified. We're not denying that whatsoever. But to get ate up on it to the point of the undeservedness was met with a divine response of outreach and blessing and delivery and, dare I say it, exaltation. I mean, isn't that what glorification is? It's our salvation coming to its end. And believers in Christ are exalted with Christ, physically speaking. Does that sound like we deserve that? No. Is it true? Yes. And that's where I bank my hope. Now, why is that not prideful? Here's the secret. Because we've already, spiritually speaking, been exalted with him and are seated next to Christ in the heavenlies as it is, Ephesians 2.6. That's already a reality. You can't undo that. It just happened to you at the moment of faith. When you responded to the gospel, God started doing this, 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 and he just set up a whole line of dominoes for you. Not the pizza. That's disgusting. But he lined them all up for you and he said, these are yours, can't do nothing about it. This is who you are. And oftentimes we live in a situation of undeservedness or bitterness or we're just mean-spirited or we just feel like we've got to control everything. We're such a type A personality that if anything does anything weird, we just lose our minds. And if those are anything... They're real, and they're not grace. See, this is why what God says about me is so much more important than what I say about myself, because I love controlling situations. I love it. Because then it happens the way I want it to. And it doesn't do anything any other way. And those people that think it needs to be done, I mean, they're dumb anyway. I mean, let's be honest. Because I play for my team, and I'm all about me. And then what I find out, is that my entire approach to encouraging my brother sisters, brothers and sisters is graceless. Who really got encouraged there? Nobody. They were probably made to feel guilty. They were probably shut down. They were probably put down. They probably left dejected. Yet when I read the Bible, it tells me that the reason why we come together and receive the word and we converse with one another, the reason why we get together like this in a large manner is for the edification of the body. Guess what? Grace has got to be the oil that, that greases those wheels. And so the attitude of grace is absolutely indispensable to me being able to serve God properly. I can't. I mean, think about what it says. Look at it again. 
Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, so looking forward, that's a good incentive to move forward in this direction because it's coming. He's going to bring his kingdom. Let us show gratitude. Let us show grace by which we may offer to God an acceptable servants with service with reverence and all that we may offer to who? See, here's the interesting thing. Our attitude of grace being offered to our brothers and sisters is never because of our brothers and sisters. That's not why we do this offering. That's not why the attitude of grace is so important for us to be cultivating in our lives. And that usually comes through humility, regular intaking of the word, confession of sin, recognizing the lordship and the preeminence of Christ over all of my life. All those things are important that we need to understand. In other words, we need to be saturated in this so that the Holy Spirit is encouraging us towards grace all the time. But what I find out is, is my display of the attitude of grace, this offering of my attitude, and that means that I'm sacrificing my bad attitude and forsaking it for a grace attitude that I'm bringing forward. I have to remember that I'm presenting that to God, not to Zach. On Monday morning when I come in, he goes, hey, how you doing this morning? And I only got four hours of sleep. And I'm trying to calm a child. And I don't understand how a kid could drool so much. And... Another blowout happened. There goes a onesie, you know, just, that's life, man. And you find good reasons to be not gracious. All of a sudden, I got blinded by the temporal things and lost sight of the eternal things. That's why the author of Hebrews points us to forever as an incentive to move forward. Because this forever, this eternal incentive cultivates grace. And that's what I need in that moment. So when I respond... My offering of grace, my understanding that I need to bring this attitude of grace to every situation is not because I'm sitting there going, well, Zach kind of deserves it today. I'm not sure if he shaved, but he smells okay. We'll give him grace. It's not it. It's not I walked around the church and found Nerf darts and Nerf balls everywhere. You know, if that's the case, it would be a situation of severe ungrace because I find those everywhere. By the way, there's some back there in that room. (laughs) I came across. But what we do find is, is regardless of who deserves what, that's not even in the situation because my offering is not unto him. My offering is unto God. Because my life is lived as a sacrifice, meaning that it costs something, to God. When I could very much take up the mantle of discouragement or despair, I am sacrificing it to take up the mantle of grace. Well, how do you do that? It all comes from Christ. The more I know about Christ, the more I know about his grace. The more I know about his grace, the more clearly I see myself. The more clearly I see myself as God sees me, I begin to reject what I see. Everybody see that? It's grace. So this attitude of grace by which we may offer to God an acceptable Service with reverence, godly fear, piety, that's the idea there, and awe, being continually awestruck of God. Maybe you're here today and you have lost the art of being awed by God. Yeah, I already know that. Yeah, we've already read that. Yeah, I've already memorized that. I promise you this, you haven't exhausted this book. 
You can't. I don't care what size your shovel is, you're never going to dig deep enough. It's impossible. There's more to know and there's more to learn. And so this discrediting or I know that, been there, done that, that that's, that's not a reflection of the word of God. That's a reflection of the heart speaking. What does that tell me needs to happen? Well, it's probably some humility that needs to go on. There's probably confession of sin that needs to happen. There's a heart that's hard that needs to be broken. And here's the interesting thing. God breaks a heart the same way that he saves a heart by his grace. It's a reflection on his grace towards us that cultivates the attitude of grace that we can turn around and offer to him. But we do so in reverence, in the fear of Christ, in the fear of God. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We take up Proverbs 1-7 very seriously. But also in all, being all struck of who he is. And then just like the writer of Hebrews loves to do, he gets in there at the very end. Wants to stab us with the... He's penciling me in the side a little bit. What does he say in verse 29? Look what he says. For our God is a consuming fire. Isn't it interesting that the slide put those little words on one slide by itself? That's a terrifying thought. We're not even going to put it here. Let's put it by itself. That's just automatic. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Now with the priestly mindset, the priestly understanding that's going on here, we talk about fire is used for burnt offerings and to burn up sacrifices and things like that. God is a consuming fire. We offer it to him because he is the one receiving it. And he can consume. In fact, this is drawn from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, which talks about not only is God a consuming fire, he's a jealous God. In fact, it's that verse right there that led Oprah Winfrey away from Christianity. Because she turned around and she goes, Oh, I didn't know that God was jealous of me. They didn't teach hermeneutics at her church. (laughs) Didn't teach a Bible study class. But that's what she came to. Something tells me pride was already there waiting to take hold of it. But he's a jealous God. Why? Because he is the best. That's not a jealous comment. And he knows that we need the best. And when we opt for something else that is lesser, yeah, that makes him jealous. Why? Because he can fulfill everything that we ever needed. And we're saying, no, 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 I think this will. No, no, I think this is better. Well, I know that God says this, but I'm going to do this. And we find substitutes for his grace being an active power in our lives. No, recognize this. Be warned. He's a consuming fire. And he will reward to the great unfathomable extremes for proper response, making those choices that lead to good consequences. In the same way that he will also discipline us for bad choices that lead to bad consequences. He's a consuming fire. He can do it. What is our first offering as priests? An attitude of grace. An attitude of grace. Turn with me over to 13. It's kind of an interval of things that happen between these subjects of what our priestly duties are. And if you will look, verse 9 is a good place to start because it gives us an idea we can all relate to pretty quickly. He says, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Weird doctrines. Somebody believes this and this and this, and you've checked the scriptures and you go, uh, that ain't right. It's okay for us to do that. Thank God that we have the word of God by which to measure all other teachings by. And that's the same with me. You hear something that I say, it doesn't seem to match up correctly. You're like, man, I don't know about that. Guess what? You've got the answer book right here. Believe God's word, not what I say. 
Verse 9, but do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For, here's the reason why. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by? Ah, there it is again. You think that's got any kind of connection whatsoever to 1228 that we just saw? Priests offering an attitude of grace, but it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Look what it says after that. Not by foods. And some of you go, now wait a second. I just had one of the most edifying conversations I've ever had with Jerry Hillier right before this started. He's talking to me about barbecue and brats and all the trimmings. What else do we talk about, Jerry? Good stuff. <laughs> there it is. He talked to me about cooking them low and slow. I'm sitting here like, yeah, tell me more. You're building me up. I love it. I'm about to float away. And I told him my secret. I've never had a brat. Now, now, you need to exercise an attitude of grace right now. Stop judging me. I'm from Kentucky, okay? Brats are not a big thing down there. I am now. But as any good person is, I'm waiting for the right brat. How many of you want to have your experience with a brat be a bad brat? Raise your hand. Okay, stop judging me. <laughs> Everybody is in agreement with me, but yeah, you're all like, trying to make a wise decision here. It's got to be a good brat. I'm waiting. Jerry makes incredible pizza, and I've had it. My chips are in his basket, okay? So, it's good to be strengthened by grace, but not foods. Now, here's what's interesting is a lot of this resembles what we understand by some of the restrictions of what we find often promoted in Catholic doctrine. Grace should be where you camp out on and where you draw your strength from, but not from whether or not you're eating a certain kind of food. Notice, though which those, sorry, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. In other words, in Judaism, they were very big about not eating pork, right? And that was something that they religiously, and we can use that word because religion is the enemy of grace, they religiously held fast to in order to demonstrate themselves as total in accordance with acceptability with God. The problem is, is that the Jews were never trying to, ex to, to gain the acceptance of God. They already had it by his grace. He was talking about ways to cultivate an intimacy with him. They instead took it as a means for self-promotion. And so I'm not going to eat that pork barbecue. Now this got down and dirty in Galatians 2 when Peter was visiting and he was like, y'all are having pork barbecue? And he started eating. And then some guys came from Jerusalem that he thought would judge him. And all of a sudden he starts separating himself and he gets out that wet napkin real quick and starts wiping off his beard and everything. And I'm not associated with those guys. And he creates a division. And Paul tells him, you've actually done something that is not in keeping with the gospel. Why? Because the gospel of, is of grace and all things are permissible if they're done with thankfulness, according to God's word. Big difference how it is to live in grace. So notice what he's saying. You can put all the religious stipulations on yourself about what you do and what you don't do. And we often gauge our Christian life. Well, at least I didn't do that today, but I did do this and that was bad. But you know what? He didn't do this, so I'm way better than that guy. You know, and we compare ourselves with one another. You may do all this thing, but look, the main thing you need to understand here is who were so occupied were not benefited. 
In other words, it didn't matter a hill of beans when it was all said and done. Verse 10, we, Christians, notice it's a personal inclusive pronoun, the author and us, believers, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle, those from Judaism, have no right to eat. What is the altar that we partake of? What is it? Not the Lord's Supper. What is it? It's the cross. The cross is the altar of God and is where Jesus Christ was sacrificed and poured out his blood. I mean, isn't that how they used an altar in the Old Testament? It was a place for the, distrib- the, 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 the distribution of blood in order to appease God, in order to atone for sin. And this is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. I know we can't see it because of the screen, but it's back there. Our altar is the cross. And when you are in the realm of the cross, you're in the realm of the grace where religion is not welcome, nor is it encouraged whatsoever because religion tells you what you must do to be accepted by God. Grace tells you you're already accepted by God because of the work of another. So we have a cross, we have an altar. They don't have any any way to. Verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside of the camp. See, here's what's really interesting. All of the sacrifices that were given to the Old Testament Jews, the Levites would go through and they would sacrifice. People would bring their lambs, their goats, their bulls, their pigeons, whatever you want to have it be, the turtle doves, that kind of thing. They would sacrifice it. They would pour out the blood for sin. And all of the the meat was able to go to feed the Levites. Why? Because they didn't have all these places to crops and tending fields. They were ministers unto God and they weren't doing anything else but that. And so these things, the blood was sacrificed to God. The animals were sacrificed to God. And then the, 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 the carcasses, that sounds so gross. Uh, anybody going out for carcass for lunch? It's disgusting. But that was given to them. So when you talked about somebody doing a burnt offering for 24 hours, that's because you were going to eat that later. You better cook it well. You better offer it well kind of thing. But on the day of atonement, it was different. On the day of atonement, the animal was sacrificed. Their bodies were taken outside of the camp. The priest couldn't partake of it because it was holy unto the Lord. And the blood was brought in by the high priest in order to atone for sin because he's paying for his sins. And he's also paying for the sins of the people every year over and over. And so the difference with this is, is while they may have been taken of the animals and eating of that any other time, the day of atonement was different. And they had no part in that. Well, however, the Christian has a step up from that. He says here, it was burned outside of the camp. It wasn't welcome there. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people. What's the word sanctify mean? Set them apart, make them holy. So he's going to do something that's going to set people apart from the world, that he may sanctify the people through his own blood. He suffered outside the gate. Now that's crazy. And you might say, I don't get it. In Jewish thinking, the idea of being inside the camp was an idea of acceptance. And it was an idea of communal living, not just with your fellow Jew, but also with your God. And so if something would happen, a sin would be committed, something would go wrong. You had to then remove yourself and be outside the camp for a period of time until you were cleansed in some way or confessed in some way or an offering was given that would allow you to come back into the camp. Or let's say it this way. This was a place of full unconditional acceptance and sin for a time would separate you from that fellowship experience, okay? Now here's what the author of Hebrews is making the argument about. 
He's saying if you think about what Jesus did in order to make a people holy, now that's kind of what you think about about being inside the camp, right? We're not like those other people. They're dirty and gross Gentiles, right? Disgusting. But we're in the camp, and that's a good thing. The author of Hebrews is saying, wait a second, when Jesus died to set apart a people, did he die in the camp or outside of the camp? Notice that he's using Jerusalem as the camp. No, he went outside the walls and they put him on a hill called Golgotha that looked like a skull and they crucified him for all passerbyers to see. And he's outside of the realm of fellowship. Does everybody see that? Okay, now watch what he says after that. Verse 13, so let us go out to him outside the camp. Let us go out to him outside the camp because, uh, sorry, bearing... His reproach, my eyes are going bad. Bearing his reproach. Now for a Jew, this may not matter to you, but for a Jew, this is is like a spike in the skull. What? You mean, go away from the place that I always thought was safe, eating the right foods, wearing the same types of clothes, not saying certain things, making sure that you're doing this, making sure that you're going there, making sure you're not doing this. The list keeping that was commonly accepted by people is rejected for the sake of drawing near to Christ. And where was he? Outside the camp. What does that tell you? It tells you that Christ is making the things outside of the camp holy. That means that it doesn't matter where you are, wherever Christ is, is where holiness is. And that's why he says, go to him. Stop living a life where you're on the scales. Start recognizing that grace makes you holy wherever you are as long as you're with Christ. That's a difference. That's why the cross stands as a centerpiece of all history. Now, we're going through all this, verse 14. For here, we do not have a lasting city. And of course, in that, he's probably referring to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not going to last forever. Go to Pete's prophecy class after this. He'll eventually get to that point. Jerusalem's going to fall. It's going to happen. Regardless of how it was set aside by God, blessed by God, loved by God, he's willing to tear that down in order to get people's attention. So we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Everybody remember earlier we're looking forward to a kingdom? We serve an eternal city. We're looking for the new Jerusalem. I can't wait for that. Come down out of heaven. Maybe it makes that sound, I don't know, but it's going to be cool. It tells us all about the walls, tells us all about the dimensions, how high, how long, how thick, how wide. I don't need the sun anymore. Why? Because God and Jesus Christ are lighting up everything. How cool is that? I don't have to pay a lion a dime ever again. (laughs) Which leads me to a tangent. How come there's not a competing energy company in this place? Something to pray about. Moving on. Verse 15, through him, who's him? Christ. Through him who died outside of the camp to make all things holy, as long as you're with him in your presence, it's holy. Okay? Or in his presence, it's holy. Through him, look what it says here. Then, let us continually offer up. Okay, stop. Priest language again. Offer up the sacrifice of, what's it say? Praise to God. Right here, right here. Everybody look at me. Don't lose what it is. It's how you're employing your mouth. It's what's coming past your teeth out into the open. If Jesus is who he is, and if he's done what he's done, and he offers it all freely to you by his grace, then the sacrifice, 
sacrifice of an attitude of grace is one sacrifice. Another sacrifice is what you're saying is offered before the Lord. How do we know that? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We understand that verse. Look what he says. It's praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Now, the fruit, the produce, what's coming out? The production that's being brought before him. Is it corrupt? Is it wicked? Or is it pleasing? Does it bring a, God, does it bring a smile to God's face when we speak to one another? When we talk about one another when others are not around? Is the mouth being used for blessing? Notice, notice how it says it. It's the fruit of the lips. And look what it says. That give what? That give thanks. I have to take off my glasses here because I can't barely see it. The idea of giving thanks, thanksgiving, offering of thanks, the, the, the sacrifice of, of praise, that type of idea, it's mentioned 56 times in the New Testament. When I say things... It comes before God. And what should be coming from my mouth is praise to God and not just a giving thanks to him, but notice, to his name. Where does the offering go? Does the offering go to Zach? No, the offering goes to God. It is incredible to see how many times, especially the Apostle Paul, uses the idea of thanksgiving should be coating the church like the Thickest Valspar paint you've ever seen in your life. You don't know how to put it, need to put on a second coat. One should do. Give thanks. Should characterize us. A heart of thankfulness. A heart of gratitude at all times. Recognizing that even in the bad places and in the pits, God still is there. God is still working. God didn't leave. God didn't bail out. God didn't let you do it on your own. And so therefore, we thank him. Now, Here's why this is so prominent. Let's take a verse that we all know, a passage that we all know. Let's bring it up, Dave, if we could. Philippians 4, we know this one. We draw on it oftentimes. We encourage other people who are going through stuff because it's all that we know to say because we're not going through it and we need to say something spiritual to them. Okay, let's be honest. Be anxious for nothing, easier said than done. You ever notice that this world's got a lot of anxiety going on? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, what does everything cover? Man, scholars, I love it. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, talking to God and petitioning him, making these requests before him, with what? Look at that. Is it obvious the person's going through a hard time? Is it obvious that internally they're a wreck? Absolutely. So how do you deal with it? What is the antidote to dealing with internal inadequacy, insufficiency, nervousness, freaking out. God gives us a prescription. Come to him in prayer. Come to him petitioning him. Look what else it says. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your heart, thank you Jesus, and your mind in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you this. If you leave Thanksgiving out, do you think that this is going to take effect? No. Why? Because the heart's wrong. 
Paul didn't make a mistake. He wasn't like, how do I make this sound more Jesus-like? With thanksgiving. He didn't do that. He said that in these hard times, the thanks needs to come. Why? Because it is an offering up to God. You are submitting yourself to your superior, to your authority, to the only one that can do anything to quell the anxiety that's bursting in you. When that person is sick and they're seven states away and you can't be there and they're too sick to get on the phone and they're too sick to text and they're too sick to go over a video conference or whatever means of communication you're trying to get today in order to check on them to make sure they're okay. How do you deal with that? Because you're freaking out about a possible loss of life. You come to God, thanksgiving, coding everything. Why? Because he's God. Don't tell me we've run out of reasons to thank him. Don't tell me that we've, well, yeah, I guess he's all right. No. Giving him thanks. That is the key that unlocks this opportunity for divine peace. Telling God is one thing. Let me ask you a question. Before you pray to him, doesn't he know what you're going to say? He knows everything. What that tells me is he's waiting upon the attitude in which we say it. And if it's different from an attitude of thanksgiving, God will not answer that prayer. I know that's strong to say, but it's true. I don't think any part of that that passage right there is a mistake. So part of what we offer, not just as an attitude of grace as priests, but also coming here making sure that what's coming out of our mouths is giving glory to his name, is thanking him for everything that he has given us. I can't think of one person right now that I know of that is in such a bad way, there's no reason to thank God for anything. There's always something to thank him for. Let's look at this last one and we'll, we'll wrap up. Verse 16. And do not neglect doing good. This is a sacrifice as well. Why? Because the right thing is always the best thing. God tells us what the right thing is. Don't neglect doing good. And what's it say? Sharing. Sharing. Letting other people use your stuff. Why? No? (laughs) That's scary? You must have some cool stuff. Jay's got cool stuff and he doesn't want anyone to touch it. Now, stop for a second. I appreciate your honesty. Anybody know what God's going to do over the next few weeks? He's going to pray. He's going to pry Jay's stuff out of his hands. He wants you more Christ-like, not selfish, brother. We live in a we live in a materialistic consumer world that loves stuff. This is just as relevant today as it was when it was written. Do the right thing, and oh yeah, you might have to share your stuff in order to get it accomplished. Why? Let's be honest. Whatever stuff you have, it's not really yours. It is. And you're right, it'll burn. If it's not being used for the glory of God now, what are you using it for? What is it possibly doing? Collecting dust? Well, great, now you got to dust it. Thank you, God, that I get to dust this stamp collection. He is praised in the heavens for that. I mean, come on, you know? There are just some things that we hold on to with such a white-knuckled grip that we have deemed incredibly precious 
that any time that God wants to come in and show us an incredible way to glorify his name and to serve as a priest before his altar with it, we're smacking his hands away and we're moving away from him in the process. Get your hands off my stuff. Do we not act like that? Because here's what it does. Is what that does is it exposes unbelief in my life. It makes me realize I I trust God with my eternal destiny. I trust God that I've been completely saved from sin. I can't trust him with this. This thing right here that's just going to stay in my pocket so nobody else can mess with it. Is that really where we're at? It's the church. I trust him with my eternity, but I don't trust him with this temporal thing that when it's shaken, it will go away and not remain and abide. Let me tell you this, guys. If it's going to be shaken and not remain and abide, it better be used now. And if it better be used now, it better be used for his purposes. So what do we do? We seek to do good with it. And if people ask of us, we share it. We share it. Now, why? Why? Let's answer this question. Look at the end of 16. Let's read the whole thing. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices it will cost you something. This is an offering of our hands, an offering of our attitude, being of grace, an offering of our mouth, being with giving of thanks or praise, an offering of our hands, being the fact that we're doing good and we're sharing. Look what it says. God is what? Pleased. There it is, guys. The ultimate motivation of the believer priest. Not, well, I hope somebody sees me sacrificing this because gosh darn it, I'm doing a good job and I'm really giving up a lot here. Not about us. Well, I hope they see how I'm helping this person. Well, I hope they really find out how much I gave in this situation. Well, you know what? I really want them to take a gold plaque and just slap it on that nice picture I bought for the church. That's what I say. All glory to God. Is he pleased? Isn't that the ultimate audience? Isn't that the only opinion? When I come with an attitude, and the reason why it needs to be of grace is because grace is pleasing to God. When I come with this attitude of my lips and what's going to come out of here, and it needs to be praise and thanksgiving, why is that? Because praise and thanksgiving are what is pleasing to God. When it comes time for a situation and I've got to act, I need to do good, That's how I need to move into this. And if need be, part with my stuff for the sake of glorifying him in the midst of it. Why? Because it's pleasing to God. Ultimately, it comes down to, is it pleasing to God? Are you looking to be pleasing to God? That's the question we have to answer. See, that right there uncovers whatever's hindering us. Well, actually, I'm looking to be pleasing to myself. Well, I'm looking to be pleasing to my wife. I want her to think a lot of me. Well, I'm just trying to be pleasing to my kids. Well, I just really want my mom to think a lot of me. There's a lot of competing influences that have no eternal value. But being pleasing to God, making the hard decisions because of who God is, and recognizing that the smile on his face is worth it beyond what I can even possibly express to you, there's the motivation to have an attitude of grace. There's the motivation to say, you know what? My words can be chosen more carefully. And instead of tearing down and criticizing in this situation, how about I glorify God? What do you think that would do? 
Wouldn't it be interesting if we all drank this potion and all the negativity just went out of us? Next thing you know, we just can't help but to say good stuff and praise God all the time. What do you think that would do here? You think we'd be a happy bunch? Think we'd have wider masks? Some of you will get that in a little bit. I think we would be overjoyed. I think what we would see is that the Spirit of God, we would begin experiencing that divine closeness that He desires for the church to have, that unity that pulls together. I mean, don't you think it's interesting with the early church and none of them esteemed the things that they had as worth keeping, but they gave to each one as any had need. You need this? I'll share my stuff. Aren't you glad Jay wasn't in the first century church? Can you, can you see that? You need a car? A car. Four wheels? Car. Doing whatever you can to weasel out of it, man. I'm just messing with you. Thank you for being my new Tom. I love it. When Tom comes back, I'm still going to beat on you a lot. It's good. Are we pleasing to God? How do we offer sacrifices? What, what are the sacrifices we offer? An attitude of what? grace what comes from our lips praise and then we do what we do good and what share we can get that right because the most important thing is god is what pleased god is pleased let's pray father we need an attitude of grace always 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 and I pray that helps us recognize the temperature of our attitude right now. We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much that you've given. Everything that we're dissatisfied with life about, we need to admit that that's selfish. We don't live for a lasting city here. We don't live for trying to build kingdoms here. We live for the kingdom to come. Thank you for making us priests. Having responsibilities to offer and to sacrifice, to give gifts. An attitude of grace, lips of praise, hands that want to do good and share. Lord, I pray that the constant question that we answer this week is are you pleased? You've told us how to be pleasing. you told us how to sacrifice. You've let us know what's expected to increase our fellowship with you. Are we pleasing you? And I pray, God, you add that to our minds, to our hearts, to our beings, to wrestle with and if need be, confess sin but to always come back to the wonderful grace we've been given in Christ. We can do this. It's not anything we can't do. Christ has made it possible for us to do. The question is, will we do it? Convince us of the better way, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.